0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're finishing a two-part message called The First and the Last in Dr. Newfeld's series, The Ministry of Our Lord. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: If you've ever noticed how our level of satisfaction and thankfulness and contentment goes down drastically when we see someone doing much better than we are. Here's an example. Let's say you own a 5-year-old very modest automobile and it turns out all your friends own very similar kinds of vehicles. But as you look at yours, you're grateful that you have a very reliable car and furthermore it has a few options that you might not have expected and every day as you get out of your house or your apartment and you go to work in your car, you're thankful for what God has provided for you. Now, imagine all your friends or work colleagues, all the people in your Bible study, they've all purchased brand new cars and your old car parked next to theirs looks like a sad thing indeed. At first, you try not to notice, but after a while, when you go, you know, for coffee after church with someone and go into their car and you come back and get into your car, you know, your thankfulness for your car, well, it's slightly diminished. And then, you know, You definitely need a new car. I mean, this thing is a piece of junk. That there's something about us as human beings in which we don't rate ourselves in how God takes care of our needs, but rather we rate ourselves against how God seems to be treating others. Now, yesterday I began to examine the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, and I call this parable maddening and confusing and one of the most misunderstood parables that Jesus ever told. And I said that because at least, so it seems to me, A great many people think the parable means we shouldn't be motivated by rewards, but I made the point that repeatedly, especially in the teaching ministry of Jesus, but also in the rest of the New Testament, there are numerous appeals to reward. You know, I gave a number of examples of that then, and let me repeat just one. You know, in Matthew 5, 11 to 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That is, don't let hardship here confound you. Instead, count on the reward. It'll come in eternity. But of course, this parable of the laborers in the vineyard was told first, you know, after the rich young ruler couldn't give up his earthly riches, you know, for the greater riches of heaven. And then second, the disciples who had given up a great many things were told that in heaven they would sit on thrones judging or giving leadership to Israel. And furthermore, they were to remember that anyone who had given up anything for the kingdom would have a hundredfold reward and would inherit eternal life. And that's when Jesus gave his very famous words. Matthew 19, 30 says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And that is to say, you might have everything in this life, but you may well end up with nothing in the life to come. You'll have to decide where you want to invest. Do you want to invest in this world or in the eternal one, which is yet to come? You better decide wisely. And with that, Jesus told this maddening parable. It's recorded in Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. We read it yesterday. Let's read it again. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go out into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. And so they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. So the last will be first and the first last. At the risk of sounding redundant, let me try to restate the parable. There was once a master of a house. He was a large landowner. He's a man who owned a sprawling mansion and the productive vineyard that was attached to it. And he went out early in one morning to hire laborers to pick the ripened grapes in his vineyard. It was harvest time. And time was of the essence. He went early and found a number of very willing workers, and he announced to them their wage. Work for the day, and I'm going to pay you a denarius. A denarius, that was a very typical wage for a laborer in that day. And so the men who took the job were more than happy to feed their families and to have the income. Yeah, they said, we'll take it. As the day was now taking shape, the men worked in the field, and the owner had stuff to do in town. And he happened to notice a number of men standing idle in the marketplace. No jobs, nothing to do. And unlike the first group, he offers them only a job, but he doesn't agree on a wage. Go work, and when it's done, take my word for it, I'll do right with you. Now, this scenario gets repeated on four occasions, at 9, at noon, at 3 in the afternoon, and then about 5 p.m., just an hour before quitting time. And then, as we can see, strangely, he decides to pay out the last group first. And as we also see, he doesn't care how long anyone worked there. He pays everyone a denarius. And just so we understand, please notice the wage disparity. Let's say, just to make it simple, that each one gets $100. And that would mean that the guy who showed up for an hour got paid, yep, 100 bucks an hour. Then the next group got paid $33 an hour. Well, you can see how this works out. By the time he gets to the last group, the ones who had been working all day, apparently for 12 hours, they got paid $8.33 an hour as compared to $100 an hour for the last group. You see why they're frustrated. Not only does the master do this, he does it in the plain sight of everyone. And furthermore, you have to believe that those who worked 12 hours were exhausted, whereas those who made 100 bucks an hour, well, they hardly even broke out into a sweat. And now notice the master's explanation when the first group complains bitterly. And by the way, you know that word to grumble, it's a Greek imperfect tense. It indicates that there's a persistence in their grumbling. That is, they didn't just register a mild response. I mean, these guys are really stoked and they want to make sure that the owner hears them out. And so the owner, who, by the way, in this parable represents God and the workers, I think they represent the disciples who are seeking a reward. Well, well, God has something to say to them. And the first thing that he says is, was I being unjust when I entered into an agreement at the beginning of the day? And of course, we know the answer. It was the agreement they had made, and the owner had done exactly what he had promised. And furthermore, it was a fair working wage. So on this first point, let's, let's do a, a bit of theologizing, shall we? God never breaks his promise to us nor is the reward he promises to those who love him ever any less than what he has promised. God keeps his word all the time. You can count on it. Now, before we get further, I wish to add that, like all parables, we can take this only so far. See, in our obedience to Christ, which involves sacrifice, and it will involve that we must lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. And for that, there is an eternal reward in heaven, This reward is not the payment of wages. None of us ever earns heaven. Indeed, we have not earned anything. See, every once in a while when we're angry with God, I mean, you might have done this. Others have been heard to say this. We protest. We say, God, this isn't fair. So let's just for a moment remember what's fair. Fair is being treated as our sins deserve. Fair means standing before the bar of God's justice and then having God pronounce sentence on us for our sins. That's fair. What's unfair is offering us the reward of heaven. To offer us this eternity with Christ when all sins are forgiven and all suffering and death is forever put to an end. What's unfair is ruling with Christ for all of eternity. No, no. Our wages are never the wages for what we have done. So please don't, from this parable, make that the point. There is never a wage that God is paying out. Please understand that at the very moment when you come to know Christ as Savior and as Lord, you leave the land of fair. Now you're living in the land of grace. The reward is not a payment for wages, it's about grace. That point must not be forgotten.
0: so grateful for those who listen, view, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement confirms that people are being impacted through the trustworthy teaching of the Bible. Just a couple recent notes we received, I'm so thankful for teaching which emphasizes both the free offer of the gospel and the urgent need for godly living in response to the gospel. And another, I find your teaching is helping me grow in my faith, and for me you are an essential service please keep on teaching the Bible. Thank you for joining us in ministry. This is why you matter. Your partnership ensures that Canadians from all generations coast to coast can grow in faith, understand the gospel, and access trustworthy Bible teaching. And don't forget this month, we celebrate our monthly partners and launch our new monthly partner 1119 Fellowship, which we invite you to join today. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: Grace means you're not being treated fairly. Rather, you're being treated mercifully. Instead of judgment and condemnation, you got forgiveness and reconciliation with God, even unto eternal life. Now, all we need to do is make a commitment. We'll never tell God it isn't fair, for it isn't. The fact is, you and I are not in hell right now, which would be fair. Instead, we are the objects of the riches of the kindness of God. See, the first lesson we need to learn in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard is that our Lord and Savior never gives us any less than what he has promised us. If he said, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you to be with me where I am, He's not going to renege on that promise. God does not break his word. It's not possible for God to lie. But as we've seen, the parable is not intended to teach us that the promise of God is a wage which we are due for the work we have done for him. You know, Just like all parables or all illustrations for that matter, we're not to take all the details and make them do service. This parable is not about how much you should get for working for God. It's not about that at all. So, the first point is not that these men have worked for money, rather the first point is that these men have received exactly what the owner has promised them. God always keeps his word. He never promises something and then doesn't deliver. But as we can very easily see, the real issue, the one that makes this parable so frustrating, is that he does not treat all his workers in the same manner. Notice how the wording goes. It's not that the workers who have been working all day say, you know, you've put us on par with those guys who showed up for one hour as if you have demeaned our work. Notice that's not what they say. Rather, what they say is you have made them equal to us. That's what bothers them. You've elevated these men to a position they don't deserve. And we, on the other hand, take exception that these men would be treated with the same honor by which you are treating us. That's what bothers them. The undue honor of unworthy men. Stop for a moment. Think about what's being said. I mean, the point of the frustration is the elevation of unworthy men, not the denigration of worthy men. The worthy men were treated in a worthy fashion, whereas the unworthy men are also treated in a worthy fashion. Now, when we read this, we might think about the contrast between, let's say, the Apostle Paul and the thief on the cross. See, the thief on the cross is surely the man who showed up at the 11th hour, or perhaps a lot later than that. He seems to have made it to the vineyard at closing time, he'd been a thief. Who is getting what he deserved, and the only thing that brought him through the door was that amazingly, he was crucified next to the Son of God at the greatest moment in human history, and he looked over at the Son of God and begged him to remember him when he entered into his kingdom. That was it. Now, contrast that, if you will, to Paul's statement of himself, 2 Timothy 4 6 8. Remember, Paul is now saying this at the end of his life, and he writes, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. i fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Notice Paul's imagery. I fought the fight. I prevailed in the heat of battle. I didn't flee from the assignment God gave me. And then I was in a great race, a race that demanded all the energy I had. And now I successfully passed the finish line and prevailed. And now the crown of the victor awaits me. See, are we to assume that Paul and the dying thief who hangs on the cross next to Jesus enter into the same glory? Yes, that's the exact image we are to entertain. It's not just a matter of what stage in our lives we are when we enter into the salvation that's being offered, but it's also about the kind of assignment that God gives us when we are saved. When Paul wrote Corinthians, you know, he's clearly laboring with a very challenging church. You know, they had resisted his God-given authority, and, and the matter had become very difficult for Paul personally. He writes to them, and note especially 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9, He writes, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And then in the next verse, he makes an interesting comparison, you know, between the unique situation of the apostles and comparing that to the everyday reality that the Corinthians were facing. He says, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And then Paul goes on to say, at present, we hunger, We're poorly dressed, we're homeless, and then he adds, we've become to some the scum of the earth and the refuse of all things. Paul didn't want to shame the Corinthians, but he did want to open their eyes to help them to see that it may be that Paul is claiming to be an apostle, but when he makes that claim, it's not because of his own choice, but it was because Jesus himself had called him to that office. And furthermore, along with that unique calling, also came the call to suffer. The Corinthians just couldn't understand this. See, with a unique calling came a great burden, and Paul wanted, at the very least, a church that had rebuffed him in the past, a church that he had loved and still did. He wanted them to open their hearts and understand the unique calling that God had given him. He wanted them to understand this and not deny it. The point I'm trying to make as I share this incident is one that I, I think we should all strive to understand. God, in infinite wisdom, has decided not to treat all of his servants in the same manner. Why does so-and-so get all the accolades and I don't get any? And the answer? In his boundless and matchless wisdom, God has chosen that it should be so. And by the way, while you're complaining about that, would you care to acknowledge that not one of God's good promises to you have failed? I mean, think of the matter of the uniqueness of spiritual gifts and the Holy Spirit who distributes them to his people. Gifts that are unique and different. Gifts that are determined by God. Gifts that have a very different impact on different people. God determines how his gifts will operate in all of us. So let's all agree then that God has assigned to each the exact role that each of us will play in the kingdom of God. Let's agree to that. And let's also remember that just before Jesus told this parable, it was Peter who had said, look, we've left everything and we've followed you. What reward will we have? See, it's possible that Peter did have in mind that in some fashion, his greater sacrifice merited a greater reward. So let's put it another way. Peter's assumption is loyal service to Jesus guarantees a greater reward because we've put in more. You know, if the disciples have borne the burden in the heat of the day, they should be given a greater reward than those who have done lesser service and showed up at closing time, like the thief on the cross. And the problem with thinking that way is that we assume, therefore, that we render a service to God and that God is placed in an obligation to compensate us for what we've done for him. And The entire point of this parable is that God doesn't compensate us at all for what we've done. Rather, all God's rewards are on the basis of grace rather than on the basis of works or what we think that God owes us. So if the denarius represents the reward of eternity with God, those who bear the burden in the heat of the day must never think that in some fashion they're earning God's grace. They're not. None of us is owed a denarius. God does not pay us according to the service we render to him. God rewards his servants according to the grace that he gives us through faith. Ah, very good. But then, why would anyone show up to work through the heat of the day. (laughs) You wonder that? I mean, why not just be like the thief of the cross? Show up at the last moment. Don't be like the Apostle Paul and burden and suffer. That's what some of us think. In answer to that, let me say, I don't envy the thief of the cross. Do you? I envy the Apostle Paul. I mean, what man can there be who's awaiting trial before Caesar's tribunal who would then write, as he does to the Philippians, of the joy that's flooding his soul and about the even greater joy that he's anticipating when he appears before Rome's Supreme Court. Because then, through words given to him by the Holy Spirit, he will proclaim Jesus without fear and he'll let all of Rome know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who gets to do that? I mean, you think the thief on the cross had a better deal than that? What are you thinking? I think not. The life that Christ offers us is a full, rich life. And yet, whether Paul or the thief on the cross, when it's closing time, at closing time, a loving and gracious father comes and brings a denarius. Or or should I put it in plain language? At closing time, the father comes and grants to all of us a gift of eternal life. The generosity extended to the last, to the least, will be equal to that which is given to the first. And does that not sound delightful? Should you not just simply take up a song of praise to a gracious Heavenly Father who helps us to see that what we have received was never in consequence of our works, but was always because of His grace? Thank God for that.
0: Thanks, John. Let me ask you a clarifying question. Does the denarius here only represent eternity, or are there other rewards? Well,
1: yes, uh, the denarius does represent eternity with everything that goes with that, which includes uh, the forgiveness of our sins, that we are washed clean, that we are made acceptable in the Beloved, that we are fully a part of Christ's family. That there are no second-class members of Christ's family. So, I think we need to say that and we need to continue to say it. So, in that sense, that's true. But I think the point I've also been trying to make is that, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, Jesus does tell us on numerous occasions that, you know, if you're faithful in little, God will put you over much. Great is your reward, he says on a numerous occasions. So, we know that there are varying degrees of rewards in heaven, but the reward of heaven, the reward of the presence of Christ and being in his presence
0: is all-consuming. Thanks again, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in the book of Matthew, the ministry of our Lord, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. To enhance and sustain the Bible teaching ministry of Back the Bible Canada, and to support your spiritual growth and that of your family members and friends, we've created the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Giving Program. The 1119 Fellowship was inspired by Deuteronomy 11, where we're compelled to love the Lord your God, to serve Him with all your heart and soul, to fix these words in your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, teaching them to your children, talking about them at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. This is the heart of Back to the Bible Canada. Consider becoming a part of the 1119 Fellowship today. For more information or to join, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call 1-800-663-2425.